Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, we meet Nevada's first Paiute woman fly fishing guide, Autumn Harry, who talked to reporter Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez and Tim Leonard out at Pyramid Lake. After that, reporter Tabitha Mueller and KUNR reporter Gustavo Segrero talk about an ongoing land dispute in northern Nevada on the Winnemucca Indian Colony. At the end of the show, I sit down with our new intern, Diane, to talk about her move from Illinois to Nevada and the differences she has already noticed between the two states. But first, a short message from our audience engagement manager on a new way to get news from the Indy. Hi, this is Kristen, the audience engagement manager at the Nevada Independent. You can now get the latest Nevada news through text. The Indy is partnering with Subtext to keep you up to date with our work and you can message us back. Send us questions about COVID numbers, comments about your favorite stories, or just say hi. Sign up by visiting joinsubtext.com forward slash the NV Indie or by texting Indie to 702-605-6692. Again, that's 702-605-6692. Autumn Harry is the first Paiute woman fly fishing guide at Pyramid Lake. Reporter Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez and video producer Tim Leonard visited the lake to talk to Autumn about fishing, guiding, and why her new role is so important to her roots. We met up with Autumn on a gusty January morning among the tufa rocks that line the shores of Pyramid Lake in northern Nevada. But new Autumn Harry, Minari, no Kiwi Papunanarowe, no Kiwi Takata, Agai Takata, Deneno. My name is Autumn Harry, and I'm a member of the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe. I am both Paiute and Navajo. As far as I know, I'm actually the first woman to guide here and have an official license, and then even cooler, yeah, to be the first Paiute woman to, to be a fly fishing guide. Here in my homelands where I grew up is really exciting. Autumn says growing up on the reservation, fly fishing didn't seem like the most accessible sport until four years ago when a guide friend of hers introduced her. After that first lesson, I wanted more. It was something that was so new where it's like, okay, I want to get better at this and I want to learn how to do this on my own. It just takes one teacher to really get someone involved in fly fishing. You know, I want to be that same person who, who can share as much as I can and educate people who are visiting and who are recreating here on, on our homelands. Autumn's mom, Beverly Harry, worked for Pyramid Lakes Fisheries Department, responsible for operating the tribe's fishery restoration project. Her father, Norm Harry, was a key figure in decades-long negotiations over management of the lake and the Truckee River. I grew up fishing. My dad and my mom took me out at a really young age. Our people here are fisher people. You know, we're known as the Kuiwi Takata, which is the Kuiwi eater. The Kuiwi are such, you know, an important part of our culture and a big part of our identity as uh, Numu, as Paiute people. Those fish are really why our people are still here today. For me, when the lake closed down, like it made me realize how even in my own homelands, I didn't always feel welcome in these spaces. 
but then I'm realizing that these are my homelands, I belong here, and I've accrued so much knowledge just within my lifetime of living here, and I have a lot to offer as a guide. When the pandemic started, a unique opportunity presented itself. Early, I think it was March 30th, the Premier Lake Paiute tribe had made the decision to shut the lake down um, in 2020. There was no competing with other fishermen for a spot. You know, everything was completely open. It was really peaceful. There were no boats on the water. It was just really like a beautiful time because there were so many natives that were fishing and that were out on the lake and we would bump into each other and you know, that's not always the case. At the same time, many tribal members were driving long distances just to find supermarkets with empty shelves. When I saw that those grocery stores uh, had limited food items, I started fishing and I just put a post on Facebook like asking if any elders or any families were in need of, of fish during that time to feed their families because food was really hard to access. I had a lot of elders who reached out and because, again, there was no competition with anyone, I was just able to catch a lot of fish and I was also able to refine a lot of my, my fly fishing skills as well and practice my casting and um, kind of develop that confidence in myself when it comes to fly fishing. So that was a really crucial time for our people. The way that our current food system operates, how we have to import goods from other countries or from other states, we saw that that's not always reliable and we can't always be dependent on that system for our food. We have to be able to, to come to the lake and know how to fish to get our food. That's why I want to continue to, to teach more people. In November, Autumn submitted her application to become a licensed fly fishing guide, which required a background test, insurance, and CPR training. I was approved by the tribe in December of 2021, and so my fly fishing business is still uh, fairly new, but it's called Kuyui Pa Guides. And Kuyui Pa, or Kuyui Pa Paninata, is our Paiute name for the lake. When people say my guide business, I want them to be saying our Paiute name for the lake. And so hopefully people will begin to practice saying that name and it will become more commonly known so that when people are visiting here, they will refer to Pyramid Lake as Kuyui Pa Punanada. I, I think that there's a lot that people are missing out on when they visit here and hire a non-native guide. And so that's what I really want to shift. I want people to come here and to be respectful of our tribal protocols and our regulations and our fish as well. To respect the fish is also to, to respect the people. Becoming a guide is not as simple as just knowing how to fish and getting a license. It's running a business too. Autumn had to front the cost of all of the gear that comes with fly fishing, a sport that has exploded in popularity over the last few years. I think as far as getting the business started, the cost of gear is expensive. Rods and reels and line and, you know, all of the necessary gear that is needed for people. And a big part of what I want to do is providing waders and boots because that gear wasn't always accessible to me for the longest time. You know, I think in any sport, like especially 
uh, like skiing or snowboarding, the cost of even rental equipment is really high and sometimes that can be a barrier to people. So it's really important that I provide that for clients and for people who are just getting started. The startup cost is expensive and that's something that I'm learning, but I know that it'll all pay off and it's a really important investment for me. I've only been advertising on Instagram so far, like I have my Kuyui Paw Guides Instagram account, but I've already had a lot of people reach out and book trips and What's, what's cool to me is that it's been a lot of women who have book trips with me. So I'm sort of seeing women as like my primary clientele in the future, which is exciting. I hope that women feel safe with me, with my guiding business. And I think having, uh, taking out other women also kind of provides like a safety net for me as well. Like with many outdoor sports, fly fishing has a conservation aspect. Many hunters and fishers are advocates for the wildlife they interact with and the land and waters that the wildlife inhabit. For Autumn, lessons learned while fly fishing can be best taught by the region's original inhabitants. Our indigenous peoples and our indigenous communities here, like our Paiute people are not people of the past. We're very much existing in present day. We're still advocating for the protection of our fish species and when people are visiting and are here to fish, I, I guess I want it to be more than just fishing for them. I want them to be taking action and to be taking these steps of, of developing that education. I don't want non-natives to see Paiute people as people of the past because we're not. If you'd like to learn more about Autumn and her guiding, you can read Jasmine's story and watch Tim's video on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. This story was reported by Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez and Tim Leonard, written and produced by Tim Leonard, and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley, Michelle Rendells, and Riley Snyder. And now we go from one story about Nevada's Native American population to another story about Nevada's Native American population. That's right, Jacob. We are going from uh, fly fishing to uh, a land dispute, actually, out in Winnemucca. Um, and, and this story is in partnership with our partners over at KUNR, the local NPR radio station up here in Reno. It's looking at the uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the BIA, which talk is talked about a lot. It's also looking at tribal elders and, and members of the tribe and, and, and who is part of the tribe. It's a complicated story, but reporter Tabitha Mueller and Gustavo Seguero break it down great for us. The Winnemucca Indian Colony consists of a little bit more than 300 acres on the outskirts of Winnemucca, including a 20-acre residentially zoned settlement. It's here that close to a dozen Native residents of the settlement are locked in a legal battle with the colony council after council members issued eviction notices and destroyed property. Colony leaders say this is necessary to clean up the neighborhood. Residents call it an effort to remove them from their home. In the 70s, the tribe created a constitution and bylaws for the colony, establishing that membership was based on two main factors. One, whether a person is a descendant of someone listed in the colony's 1916 census when it was formed. And two, blood quantum, which is a controversial measurement of the amount of indigenous blood a person needs to have to qualify for membership. 
Almost a decade later, the Bureau of Indian Affairs looked at the Constitution and said that none of the council members leading the colony met the criteria for tribal enrollment. And instead, residents belonged to other tribes, such as the Fort McDermott Paiute tribe. The determination led to decades of upheaval and confusion about who should sit on the council. It's worth noting the colony started as a place for displaced northern Paiute and western Shoshone Native Americans who did not have a place to call their own in the early 1900s by executive order. An attorney representing the colony council said there are 33 legitimate colony members, but none of them live on the colony's land. She said members left after some violent incidents in the early to mid-2000s. On the flip side, an attorney with Nevada Legal Services who represents some of the residents in the eviction case said the issue of who qualifies for membership and who has the proper authority to make membership decisions is an open legal question. To boil it down just a little bit further, the key point here is that residents are questioning the legitimacy of a council whose members don't live on the colony. I spent a couple days up in Winnemucca and met with people living on the colony, including Lavelle Brown, who's been here since she was a kid. Well, my mother raised me here, and I grew up here. All around is family. And um, I had met Eugene, then we had our daughter, and then now she's a mother, so that's like four generations here. Lavelle's home was slated to be demolished next. The skirting was ripped off her home, and the gas and utility lines had all been severed by a private contractor. And then the land protector showed up. That's what Lavelle's calling a group of organizers and activists, most of whom I spoke to who were indigenous. But there were other allies there, too. I got to meet Nenakasi and Tiwani, who had driven here from six hours away after seeing the destruction of property on social media. Tiwani and a number of others, including a resident on the colony, have now been arrested. And aside from reports from the BIA, details are still a little unclear. One judge told the group once they've made bail to not go back to the colony other than to gather their belongings and leave. Back in December, Nenakasi said when she saw what was happening, they knew they had to do something. The way we're raised, you know, is that we respect our elders, we take care of our elders. And to see elders over here getting treated this way, it, it hurt. Some of the destruction of property that's happened has also involved the BIA, which residents have said they've seen standing by as contractors bulldozed a home. And their presence is now unwelcomed by elders and land protectors. On the other side, the colony council expects the BIA to do more in evicting who they see as non-members of the colony. I've reached out to the BIA offices as well as the colony council and the Department of Interior, but I haven't been able to get a response. I was hoping to get a 10,000-foot perspective on the colony, so I spoke to Brian Melendez. He's a community organizer currently focused on creating greater voting access for indigenous communities. He also used to work at the BIA when the current council came to power. He says while these communities are stuck arguing over the few resources they have, like this land which has valuable infrastructure for residential use, they're distracted, and says ultimately that's to the benefit of non-indigenous outsiders and organizations. At the core of these problems, are non-tribal processes and regulations that have, have historically subjugated tribal people. While these arguments are ongoing in the court system, folks who live in the colony have voted on their own leadership team. But the biggest difference here is, unlike most of the previous councils, they actually live on the colony, including people like Lavelle Brown, the elder from earlier. The idea, they say, is to decolonize the structure of leadership in this community by working outside of the federal system they say is working to oppress them. 
All right. Well, I am here with Tabitha and Gustavo, who you just heard from. And we're going to expand a little bit on the story that we just heard. And so to start off, I just wanted to know what what drew you to the story? Why are you reporting on this right now? I think the story of people organizing for either elders or land, protecting land or protecting water rights has always been something of interest. And I think this is one of those stories that's tangential to a bigger story in regards to what else is happening in the Winnemucca area. And another reason why this story kind of caught my interest was the social media presence, which brought this to my attention. Just considering the spaces that I kind of follow, they've all been kind of sharing their voice about like, hey, this is a thing that's happening and everybody needs to pay attention. And that's kind of what brought my focus into what's happening here. What drew my attention was the lack of like the lack of media on this story, right? We, here is a group of people who are facing eviction, who are navigating the potential loss of their homes and no one was reporting on it. No one was talking about it. I think it's beneficial when you hand the microphone over to a community that hasn't historically had it. How have things changed recently? What does it look like on the ground? What are you hearing from people? I think the biggest thing that's kind of changed recently is that there's been some recent arrests that have been made of people who have been organizing on the colony, some of whom have been points of contact with media. They're not available anymore, which is making it harder to kind of get in touch and find out what's exactly happening there. Aside from what we're seeing with other people posting on social media and what the legal court case documents are showing. And attorneys familiar with the case have been down to the colonies that there's kind of a heightened police presence right now. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of tensions. People are scared, just a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. And you mentioned in the piece, the colony started as a place for displaced Paiute and Shoshone natives. Can you guys tell me a little bit more about that? Expand on that a bit. So in 1912, uh, then president Woodrow Wilson sort of assigned this land. It was about 300 acres, 20 of which are where people are living now. And so this is for natives who don't have a home or place to go. A lot of where residents are coming from in this story is saying, we don't have a home. This is our home. And this land was originally designated for us. And that's where kind of these legal questions are coming in. You know, do you go based off this constitution and bylaws? Who has the right to the land? Who has access to it? Especially when the land was originally designated for people without a home. So right now, there's also a heightened police presence in the area. Why is that? Basically, we don't know for sure. There's a lot of different guesses that are going around. We've heard from some of the attorneys surrounding the case that this is sort of a response to some of the arrests that have happened, right? There's more attention from law enforcement. There are more individuals located there. I think Gustavo mentioned we've been trying to reach people on the ground, but it's hard when some of our contacts are in jail or... People are kind of not talking because they don't know for sure what's going on either. But a lot of the tensions that have happened have been because there's a heightened presence of Bureau of Indian Affairs officers who are on this land. There's some indication that they've been brought on by the Colony Council. There's been some indication that some of the residents on the land have called in these officers. It's just sort of in this, we don't know for sure because everything's in this weird I think it's important to acknowledge, too, that there's been a strained relationship between the people on the colony, which includes the residents, the elders, as well as the land protectors, as they're being called, and also the law enforcement arm of the BIA. There's been tensions, you know, there's been moments when BIA has shown up on the premises 
of the colony and organizers, elders and residents have all shown up and said like, hey, like we don't want you around here. We want you to take off, which is kind of different from what's happening right now, especially with what Tabitha mentioned earlier. And, and some of that presence has caused for, you know, escalation. So what's kind of the next step in this story? What are you going to be looking for moving forward? I think one of the biggest interests of mine is seeing what the relationship is between the BIA and the communities here in the Nevada, Northern Nevada in particular. And then as well as like, who are the, who are the people who are not indigenous? How are they getting involved in these communities? What's the significance of their involvement? You know, what is their incentive? Because it seems like this sort of commotion didn't happen until we started seeing more outsiders start to introduce themselves into the conversation and in these spaces. Then also, when will we know what the final verdict is on who has the right to the land? And that's going to be decided ultimately in the courts. All right. Well, thank you guys both for joining me on the podcast today. And thank you for doing your uh, your reporting. Sure thing. All right, Jacob, well, we are on to our last segment of the show where we meet our newest intern, Diane Ohm. Yes, this is tradition here at the Indie Matters podcast, though not a tradition that started when I was an intern because I never got an interview on the podcast. And I don't <laughs> hold that against anybody. Definitely not Joey. <laughs> yes, and I, I think about half of our staff is now former interns. Um, and, and so you and me are, are both part of that cohort. Yeah, and so uh, we'll get to meet Diane a little bit. I am here with our newest intern, Diane Ohm. And Diane, where, let's, this is your second day, third day? I guess it's your second day. Yeah, yeah. So welcome to the team. You've definitely had a lot to do already. In just two days, you were live tweeting uh, the COVID update call the other day. And and let's just start. You're not from Nevada originally. Where are you you from? Where where are you coming from? I'm actually from South Korea, but then I moved to States when I was 15. And I did high school in various parts of the United States, such as Kentucky, Wisconsin, Oregon, and lastly, I did my undergrad and master's at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Is there, is there a topic that interests you a lot in reporting right now? Right now, I'm just trying to get a broader sense of the state. Yesterday's COVID call was definitely eye-opening for me because I didn't really get like a street view of like all the COVID things happening right now in the state and learning what's going on in Reno area and also in the Las Vegas area. So what was it like doing your first COVID call? What, what, what did you learn about the state that Nevada is in right now with, with COVID-19? Okay, what was uh, surprising for me was that the vaccination rate was low in the Reno area, especially saying that a lot of people have gotten the initial two shots, but then a lot of people also haven't received the booster shot yet. And that could really increase the chances of people being protected from COVID and also not feeling seriously ill when they actually happen to get it. So that's one of the things that was really striking for me. And also another thing was that although the transmission rate is really high, the mask mandate was also lifted last week as well. So those are the two things that are kind of currently going on that could also confuse people, like fooling them into thinking that they're safe. But COVID is still very much ongoing. It's currently a still a pandemic and it hasn't been devolved into an endemic as of yet. So that's one of the things that I learned from yesterday's two meetings. You just moved here a couple of days ago. What are you seeing when you're uh, walking around Las Vegas? I don't know how much you've explored, but are you seeing a lot of people wearing masks? How is it different than say Illinois where you were before this? I would say back in Illinois, I was back there um, and back there when I was before moving to Las Vegas, people 
the mask mandate had not been lifted yet. So people were still wearing masks indoors and they were very um, cautious about moving around and all that. And also the cold weather kind of helps people like to keep their masks on. But over here, I've noticed, especially in the strip, not a lot of people are wearing masks anymore. And I think people have gotten a little lax about practicing caution. So those are the striking differences that I noticed. But then with the mask mandate being lifted so suddenly, I guess it makes sense that people are like starting to free like oh maybe like it's okay now we can go outside and enjoy this warm weather it's definitely been a uh, a shift i'm kind of just curious you know as a new a new resident of the state to get what's different what what it's kind of unique about nevada that you're noticing i know you haven't had a lot of time to to get acquainted with the state but what's the first impression that the the state gives to you i moved here on saturday so it's been less than a week (laughs) i just noticed like the the fauna is like different, all the mountains, like you hardly see any any different like landscape other than cornfields in Midwest. So that's one of the differences. It's nice to see something other than cornfields and like miles of just road, just a change of scenery. And also it's been very nice to be around people from diverse backgrounds. And that was one of the like the differences that I noted Other, compared to Midwest. I noticed that over here, there are a lot of tourists, a lot of people from different backgrounds. So it's been very interesting to just meet people like on the street and just to ha- strike up a conversation. Have you experienced much of the, the Vegas heat or the, the dryness that the state brings with it? There's not much water in the air here. I have definitely felt the dryness. I can feel like my hands that get so dry over here compared to back in Illinois. And also just the dry climate itself. Just like I took a road trip to Red Rock over the weekend and I just noticed how different the climate is. And it was definitely something to get get used to initially. Is there anything uh, that we can expect to see from you working in the next couple of weeks? What are what are some of your big stories that you're looking forward to reporting on? So one of the stories that I'm currently preparing for is a story about a master sommelier who oversees the wine selection and the distribution and the MGM uh, resorts. So he should be a very interesting person to interview. He's also Korean-American and he immigrated here when he was two. So I'm looking forward to speaking with him and also hoping to get some nice like photo and video footages of him. Well, is there anything else you want to talk about or that you've noticed before we, uh, before we wrap up here? Nothing in particular. I'm just really glad that I decided to move to Las Vegas and take this job and everyone's been super helpful. And yeah, I, I'm really excited for what the next three months would present. Yeah, all right. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast and welcome to the, the Indie. And uh, we really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Autumn Harry, Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez, Gustavo Seguero, Tabitha Mueller, and Diane Ohm for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, title names for books written about the history of clipboards and their various uses and meanings throughout history, or whatever else is on your mind, at joey at theenvyindie.com or jacob at theenvyindie.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.
Yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll edit this. I'm sure it's fine. Got it. Yeah, we'll fix um, it in post. And by we, I mean you, of course.